It is time for Pet Chat, and the gang are here. Great to be with you all again, Dr. Bob and Cheryl Shaw. Dr. Uh, David. Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave. Oh, my, what have get, I done? What I'm, have I done? I've ruined it already. I'm getting taller and funnier. Well, <laughs> we'll let the rest of the program be the deciding there factor on that, won't we? <laughs> Cheryl, what will you be talking with us about today? We're going to be talking about music for your dogs and what should be on their playlist. Oh, I like to end you are. Absolutely. <laughs> End of discussion. We don't need you anymore. Dave, what have you got for us a little later? Uh, toxic plants, poisonous plants in the garden. Cheryl Shaw, good afternoon. You've got a, this very interesting topic about animals and music. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about this. So what are your thoughts? Well, music can really influence behaviour of dogs. So many owners we know leave the radio on when their dogs are at home alone, so when they're going out, and they leave it on for comfort and sound. Um, and that way, often dogs are a lot more settled. We know that dogs can hear frequency a lot higher than us, really about twice what we can hear. And if you, um, if you were to get a dog whistle and blow it, you wouldn't be able to actually hear it, but the dog will. So we know that they really do have this high frequency of hearing. So should we perhaps be having, with that in mind, frequencies, like something that's not too high or something that's a bit lower? What are you thinking? Absolutely. There's been lots of studies about um, playing music and a lot of... Um, um, Animal shelters actually play music for dogs just so that they can settle them down to stop the barking. And they find that if the dogs are more settled, often um, people will spend more time in the shelter because obviously it's not so noisy, it's more conducive to selecting a new pet. So um, playing the music in the shelter has that um, way of just settling the dogs down. There's been many studies on what helps reduce the levels of stress and anxiety, both in humans, cats and dogs. But You've got to be careful what music you select. Here we go. Now, this is the interesting thing, isn't it? So yeah. what should we be list- What should the animals be listening to? What should they not? Okay. So if you've got a dog that's really reactive and energetic and hyperactive, noisy and aroused, you certainly wouldn't want to be playing any heavy metal rock type music to it because that's actually going to lift its levels and make it even more noisy and not settled at all. You want to play something that's really low and slow, soothing sounds that will help to calm the dog down and this can actually decrease barking. So if you've got a really reactive dog and you start playing some nice calm music, you'll find that the dog will settle. But it is about selecting that right music, Mark. It's those tones, those musical tones. They need to make sure that um, it's something along the lines of more classical music. So your, um, you know, you, the, the classical music where the beat is nice and calm, and it will reduce that anxiety. Something like the Four Seasons, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. That's very calming, but. Don't go playing, as I said, that heavy metal music. You need to remember also the volume. You don't want to have that music too high because the dog's hearing is really, you know, very sensitive. If you're playing music that's high, if you're amping it up, the dog's really going to react to that. So that classical music, it's the best. When you're selecting tunes for your dogs, just because you like a particular, you know, set of music, it doesn't mean that your dog's going to like it. So watch your dog for its body language. Just see if it is reacting, if it's starting to calm down or if it is actually getting agitated. So watch for signs that the dog is relaxing. That will help you to uh, make up your mind what type of music you want to play. There is one that I would not play. The, if your dog is uh, really anxious and, and um, is noise phobic, I certainly wouldn't play the 1812 Overture. <laughs> 
bit too much in that forum. Oh, absolutely. We might have some dogs that aren't very happy about that. But look, have a have a good think about what music you like and see how when you're playing it, if your dog um, is, is liking that music or if not. Um, I know that, David, you're really into Robbie Williams. So do you play your Robbie Williams to your dog? Of course. Of course. She and gets no, no choice in the matter. No choice. Oh. I, I assume she likes it. Maybe she also reacts to me, though, because it's only when I'm you know, present. Yeah, and you're dancing around to Robbie and she's watching you. Oh, I'm not going to divulge my secrets, okay. Cheryl. It's too late. Too okay. late. <laughs> so anyway, it there is There might be great. an association thing there because we the dog sees you happy. Yeah. And be, this is what makes you happy. So yeah. there's, it's, there's yeah. a bit of a feel-good thing there. I know that when I'm doing massage or myofunctional therapy on a dog, I actually play a special CD that I have for relaxation for dog music. And um, it certainly does help to probably just bring me down as well as the dog down to a nice calming level. I don't do those weird things like, you know, lighting candles and incense. It's just that music in the background, which is really nice. Well, that's not going to do much for the dog, No, you would think. Yeah. Never mind. Uh, some interesting thoughts there. I, I, you kind of lost me when you said that, uh, well, just because you like some music doesn't mean the dog's going to like it. So it's not like a person you can sort of brainwash them into liking your likes. It's not going to happen with the dog, is it? No, absolutely not, because we hear music differently than what dogs do. Mm. And they're just a lot higher, they hear it. Yeah. And that higher frequency. All righty. If you've got a, a question for our pet experts this afternoon, 49216216. Dave, we're going to bring you in on this one. We had a listener call in that feeds magpies and other birds. Uh, they mix in with all the feed some raw meat. Now, she has three or four lorikeets that come along and help themselves. Is the raw meat okay? Uh, it's an interesting thing. I think the we see this a lot. And usually the number one thing that happens is birds, for birds, it's a survival instinct. So there's food available, I'll come and take it. It's, uh, lorikeets are uh, nectivorous birds, so they actually don't ingest. They will eat it, but it's, um, I don't think it's okay for them. Now, that's one aspect of the different species. The, qu- the other thing is, is raw meat suitable for magpies as well? So, you know, again, the answer probably is not unless you know exactly what the diet should be. And there are some resources that describe that, particularly when we're hair-rearing birds um, in different species, like the carnivorous species versus these nectivorous species, um, or and even looking at things like uh, owls and so on that are uh, maybe um, insectivores. Uh, so you've really got to tailor the diet for those. The other big issue, though, here is that when you're putting food out, it means you, you're getting all the birds together. And naturally, birds are spread out. So what that does is it increases the risk of disease. And oftentimes we'll see that, um, for in, uh, instance, an, a sick bird comes in because it's so unwell it can't get food anywhere else. So what it does is it hangs around, and now we're spreading disease to the other birds. And this happens a lot with um, parrots, uh, particularly with circovirus, uh, which is beak and feather disease. We often see the cockatoo, for instance, or so on that has beak and feather. The very obvious one that has lost all its feathers and its beaks falling apart um, really is an unwell bird. And because the food's there, it'll come in, other birds come in, and now we're going to increase the chance that we're spreading that disease. So they're kind of treating the, the food bowl, it's almost like a hospital. Yeah, well, that's right. You're congregating mm, all the sick health, ones together, healthy ones and mm. sick ones. So I think the better option for most people is to plant trees in your backyard that attract bird species. And uh, most nurseries can talk to you about, you know, different species that attract different birds. It's much better to do that. And look, I realise that, you know, there's a great deal of attraction of putting out the food and the birds come. But 
overall it's not that healthy for the wild bird population. And stay away from the raw meat. Yeah, look, mm. I, there is a lot of um, difficulty when you start just feeding raw meat. It's not a balanced diet, even for the magpies, as I said. Particularly if it's a bit of roadkill you've scraped off to put in the... Well... No? <laughs> no? Oh, dear. This is, a, this is a great show, isn't it? This is <laughs> it today. Is. <laughs> today. It is. We're going to move on to have a quick discussion about some... Uh, I know you're pointing at me couple of things mm-hmm. um so a bigger topic i want to tackle is um some dangerous plants in the backyard but before i get there there was some news media last week about uh removal of a flea control product um that had caused some harm and i think death in uh, one or more cats um now the products there's not just one of these there's actually a few different brands so it really doesn't matter talking about any individual but it's really about the ingredient and so the ingredient that we are concerned about is pyrethrins now generally they're actually quite a safe product overall if we look at you know dogs for instance and it's even used in people it's a um, insecticide that's derived from chrysanthemums Uh, and so a lot of people might say oh you just plant plenty of chrysanthemums around and it'll keep your fleas away well kind of but um, in this case, what's happened is that there's been the product has been applied to cats, which is, as per label directions, the problem with cats is they groom themselves. And so what happens if, if you don't apply it properly, um, it is possible that the cat can actually start to ingest a large amount. Now, I was just saying to Cheryl before we came back on air that actually it can be used safely in cats and I've seen that done many many years but the problem is with cats is that they're just more susceptible and so this safety margin between what is treating the problem and what could potentially be toxic is very narrow so unless you're able to supervise your cat um, you can use these products safely but there are safer products around every every uh, you know chemical I guess or every product on the market um, has a um, you know a degree of risk associated. Like if you just pour it on them, you're going to cause harm. So it's not not per se just saying that one is more toxic than the other. It's really about the dose. That's the most important thing. Because um, some people say, oh well, I just use um, lime in the yard. Yeah, that can be caustic on their feet too. Mm. Or I give them garlic. Well, I've seen that actually cause um, blood disorders. So I think it is safer to use a product that has been tried and tested. But again, just be careful with the directions. There are safer products around. Look, vets have known about this for years and years and years, and we just advise people to use them properly and be cautious. Unfortunately, cats are always there to push the limits, aren't they? So, Well, I'm a cat person, so... You know, know what they're like. They yeah. d- you've got to, just got to be careful because they're Very a little much. more sensitive to some of these things. Um, so that's a recent thing that's been around. Talk to your vet about flea control products um, because a lot of these are bought through supermarkets and you're just not going to get the level of advice that you need. Has there been a lot of alarm with, with all of this happening, a lot of fake news, or, or are we okay? Well, I, look, there's another product that's very similar. It's called permethrin. And we've known that permethrin is dangerous in cats for quite a long time. I think when permethrin first came on the market, and I'm talking 20, 30 years ago, uh, there was one product that was labelled for cats, and it very quickly was discovered that actually it wasn't going to be safe. So it was removed. And all for, since then, 30 years ago, since then, permethrin has been labelled for dogs only. However, having said that, 
a lot of people come home and they put some on their dog and they go, oh, you know what? We'll put a little bit on the cat as well. And that's just too dangerous. Mm. So pyrethrin, permethrin, they're, they're from the same group, but they're different products. Uh, the one that's caused the recent hoo-ha is pyrethrins. And, and again, just um, getting proper veterinary advice, making sure you use it as per label directions and read the directions very carefully. The, a lot of the permethrin products have actually got labels on them, do not use on cats, not for cats. They've got a picture of a cat with a big red line through it. And I have people who come in and say, oh, I never saw that. And it's on the box like 15 you chose times. Not, you chose not to read it is, is what you did. It's just there. People there. just, you know, say, think, oh, well, this will work on the dog. It'll work on the cat. Mm. So we just need to be very careful. That's my main message around that. And most importantly, read the instructions. Yes. If there's, if there's a big red circle with a line through it and a picture of your pet, probably <clears throat> avoid using it. Correct. I think we might have a look at your topic for today, mm. Dr. Dave. Not just weeds. Well, you know, at this time of the year, you're sort of just having a look at the garden mm -hmm. and thinking, okay, what are we going to be doing come spring and so on? A bit of pruning and getting ready. Running away from hay fever is what I'll be doing. Right. <laughs> well, that's the allergy problem we were yeah. just talking to Maureen about. But what I wanted to talk about is some of the plants that we have in our backyard are actually quite toxic. Now, there's there's quite a few. I'm only going to pick out three little, three that we can quickly chat about in a few minutes. First one is cycads which are a type of palm so there's different types but like the one that we most commonly see is a sago palm and these are uh, contain um, toxins in all parts of the the plant but particularly in the seeds and there have been reports that actually as few as two seeds just one two can cause death in wow. dogs and so what happens is it causes gut problems to start with. So it ulcerates the gastrointestinal tract, uh, causing vomiting and diarrhea. It can then go on and cause liver damage and um, kill off parts of the liver. So with that, you can get jaundice, so that yellow discoloration of the skin. You can get bleeding disorders. You can actually get um, uh, ammonia poisoning through the liver not working properly, and that affects the brain. And ultimately, it can also, the toxin can also go on and cause damage to the brain itself. And so you get tremors and seizures. Now, if your dog does survive, um, they can take, uh, you know, up to two weeks to recover. And some of them may have permanent liver damage. So if you're unsure, have a chat to your vet, have a chat to the nursery to identify if you might have one of these palms um, in your yard and uh, make take measures to reduce your dog's uh, pet's exposure to it. The other one that we commonly see, and I have to put my hand up here, I've got a couple of these in the front yard, is Brunfelsia, which is uh, sometimes known as yesterday, today, tomorrow. So it's quite a leafy, green, shrubby bush, but it, it comes out with these flowers that start as purple, turn pink, and then go white over sort of three to five days. So they're very common... All parts of the plant are toxic, but the seed pods are the most dangerous. And what they contain is a toxin that stimulates the nervous system. So the dogs look like they're having seizures. And um, it's very similar to snail bait poisoning. So when a dog comes in in this state, I'm always thinking, okay, is this dog, has it eaten some snail bait? Or could it have Brunfelsia poisoning? Um, so, you're, so you're running a game here of do as I say, not as I do, because you've got some in your backyard you just mentioned. Front yard. I, Front yard. Yeah, but I keep my dog away from it. Okay. My, just keeping an eye on you. Keeping my wife's at home going, no, he doesn't. The dog's just <laughs> not interested. 
Um, and the other one, just quickly then, is and this is kind of less in the yard, but it can be, and more commonly cut flowers in the house is lilies. If you get lilies in your house and you've got a cat, cats love to jump up on the uh, on the bench, the sideboard, and just have a look and a lick and maybe taste the lily. Extremely toxic to cats. All right, causes permanent kidney damage and in many cases can cause death. So just be very careful about uh, if anyone gives you lilies and you've got cats, you need to let them know that that's not appropriate. Thanks, Dave. Some great advice there. If you've got those uh, trees or shrubs in your yard, just be very careful of them with the dogs. We might head to the, the telephone. Good afternoon, Helen at Wall's End. You are uh, on the phone now. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, look, I have a female eight-year-old Cheddarville Terrier uh, continually licking her paws, um, um, like underneath in the pads or on the paws, and and it's been going on. It's it's it's. I don't know what's going on with it, but I came home a couple of weeks ago. Well, I'd been out, and I came in. It was about eleven o'clock at night, and she was limping, but she's not now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she's just always licking her paws and her feet. So I, I just how, wonder if it's a nervous habit or it's a stressful habit or. Yep. yep. How long has she been doing this for? Well, yeah, look, quite a few weeks now. Okay. Uh, when my my husband died about four and a half years ago, she was doing it then, and and I remember someone said it, it's probably stress related, which probably was. But I just wondered, and she's an inside dog, so. Um, mm. And I think maybe sometimes she gets a bit um, peed off if I go out and leave her and, and that type of thing. So I thought it might be just that or... Yeah, it, could, it certainly could be. We do see anxiety disorders sometimes manifest as excessive yep. and compulsive licking. Yeah. Um, I, I think the bottom line there is that when the dogs are doing that, it's actually a, a way for them to distract their brain. It's an activity that occupies them so... Um, in regards to anxiety, it's like, I'll do this because then I don't have to think about this. Um, okay. And it's that repetitive nature. Now, the other thing we always see too is in similar to Maureen's scenario with her dog with ear problems, some dogs with allergies, the only place it shows up is the feet yeah. um, because that's the area that's in contact. And even if the dog is an inside dog, we do see a large amount of dogs that have um, allergies to house dust mite. Yeah. Uh, same as people. So I think you've got the two major possibilities. Yeah. Um, and I'd be certainly investigating just in case there is an allergy um, because, again, the treatment's going to be quite different. You know, if your dog's got an anxiety disorder, that's one treatment. If your dog's got allergic skin disease, then the anxiety treatment's going to be a waste of time. Yeah. And, and I know it's like, like if my kids come to visit and then when they're leaving as soon as they stand up to leave she starts sort of almost howling to say well you know you're not going to leave me eh? and, mm-hmm. and I usually just pick her up and, and walk out the front and make sure that she's with me when I say goodbye to her and blah 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 and yeah I, she, she just seems to be anxious and I, that's what I put it down to maybe that she doesn't she's worried that I'm going to leave her and you know but yeah, I don't know. I uh, just some, don't know. Yeah, sometimes we do see uh, separation anxiety show up in that way. You're absolutely correct. It's, um, yeah. And, and that's where I'm just thinking, well, I think we need to find out one way or the other um, because I wouldn't want your dog to continue to experience anxiety no. um, if we can help. Yeah. 
Yeah. And and by the same token, I don't want her to have ongoing itchy skin and allergies uh, yeah. when we could help that as well. So it, it's kind of right at the point. It's going to be one or other of those things most likely. 90, 95% of the time it'll fall into one of either of those two things. There's probably a few uh, bizarre things that are in that 5%, but I think, you know, we work out which one it is. And if you go back and see your vet about this, and they'll be able to do a few tests and probably just talking with you about trialling some therapy, I think yeah. you'll I think you'll get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. Okay. Right. Okay, then. No worries. Thank Thanks, you. Helen. Marie, good morning. Good afternoon, Marie at Gateshead. You've got your Maltese. He's having some problems with the toilet. I think we've got Boyd. Boyd. We've got Boyd instead. Hello. Oh, they've disappeared. Mm-hmm. Oh, hello. Hello. Who, who hello, are we speaking with? Mary. Oh, hi. Now, you've, you've got a Maltese that um, is misbehaving with these toilet habits. Yeah, yeah. So normally she'd go in on the paper in the bathroom, but now she's coming out in the hallway uh, and she's there, just only peeing. She's not doing the other. Oh, thank, <laughs> thank goodness for that. How old's your little one? She's 13. 13 years. Yes. Oh, okay. All right, so she normally goes, uh, you've got some paper, like some absorbent paper or something down in the bathroom? Yes, yes. I put newspaper down. She's been mm. doing that, going on that since she was a puppy. Okay. But now she's coming out in, I've had a um, doctor uh, look at her, but no, it's got no um, joy. So I just wanted to know if there's a, something I can do to stop her. I've been putting mm-hmm. those uh, dog nappies, you know, those, yes. they're like... Had. Yeah. I bought those and I've been putting those down, but but she won't. She still pees on them as well. So. So you. Put, but other times she'll go in on the paper, so I don't know. So you put them in the hallway as well. Yes. And she yes. went on them or went yes. on beside them. Yes. She did, but then she did. she'll okay. she'll. I sprayed a bit of um. Uh, vinegar around, but now she she won't go on the mat. She's going on the carpet. Oh no. Oh no. Um, well, first of all, I'm glad that you've had a um, veterinary examination for her, particularly in an older dog. I would think I would be thinking about the reason we sometimes see this change of toileting is uh, arthritis. Um, it can be some urinary tract diseases like uh, bladder infections. We also see hormonal diseases such as diabetes or even kidney disease where the dog needs um, to... She's not all that. There's no diabetes or anything like that. I've had the blood test done. Excellent. Yeah, and yeah. All, all of those things would cause her to go more frequently. The arthritis is sometimes an issue that they actually can't get there quickly enough. Uh, no. So... You know, that's if you've had all that checked out, that's great. Um, the other thing we sometimes see is cognitive dysfunction, which is kind of like a dementia. And sometimes right. a change of toileting is the first sign that that's a problem. Right. Um, now, there are, there are other signs that might start to show up. So change of sleeping habits, you know, dogs that are... Um, used to sleep well, now are up during the night and they used to be awake during the day, now they're sleepy all day or vice versa, um, can sometimes be a symptom. Dogs that just seem to be staring into space um, or, you know, um, go looking for food in the wrong places, anything that kind of looks like tissues acting really confused, that could, could actually be a sign of canine cognitive dysfunction or dementia. 
Um, there are actually some treatments that seem to help. What we think is happening is that areas of the brain are not getting the blood flow that they need. Oh, okay. And obviously there's a degenerative disease in the brain that occurs similar in people where basically, um, you know, things are just getting old, wearing out, um, and the nerve connections aren't happening upstairs. So uh, as I said, there is some medication. There is actually also some diet changes that can be made. Um, I can't speak too strongly about, you know, how effective they would be, but some people feel they help. So there's yeah. often, oftentimes there's some things to look at, um, like the medication, the diet. The other side of it is exactly what you've been doing, and that's moving the mats around. Because um, yeah. it's better if she, even if she does change rooms, that she's still toileting on the mat because, on the paper, because um, you know at least one, it's easy to clean up, and two, you're just giving her the habit that that's the right place to go. So I'd still stick with that. Sometimes she doesn't, though. Sometimes, though, she just um, pees two inches off the mat, yeah. Yeah. you know, and um, but other times she'll walk straight past the mat and go in on the paper. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's, what, that's why I'm wondering whether there could be um, cognitive dysfunction or de- dementia. So... Probably worth having another chat with your vet about whether the, it's worthwhile starting on some medication for that, and that may make a difference. Um, and it's you know probably worth uh, giving it a shot. Good luck with that, Mari, and the dog and the cleaning as well. Dave, you'd volunteered to go and clean that up, didn't you? Just then, I did. Oh, yeah, I saw you put your hand up, so oh, you're okay. We're on radio. We are. Well, I saw it. <laughs> I saw it. We've got Boyd at Lambton. You've got a labradoodle with a growth in its ears. Good afternoon, Boyd. Hi guys, how are you? G'day Boyd, thanks for hanging on. Um, yeah, what's going on with your Labradoodle? I've got a 12-year-old Labradoodle that um, I, I left with my mother um, 11 years ago and never got a return. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a familiar story. <laughs> He's the most beautiful dog as Labradoodles are. But there's a problem with his ears and, and he, he's clapping them all the time. Uh. And from flapping them, he's then getting a, um, a, a, a like, a, 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 I can't think of the medical term. It's called a hem- uh, hematoma. That's the word I'm after. Yeah. Now, I have a vague recollection of talking to someone along the way that said when he was clipped, they should take, they need to be really intentional about taking their hair outside of inside of his ear to stop that from getting ear, ear irritation. Am I joining the wrong dots or is there a different explanation? Um, it's, it's close. You're close. Um, you're warm, I think. <laughs> so ba- if you, if you heard some of the conversations we had earlier, particularly with Maureen about her dog with the ear problem, which we talked about allergies. So Labradoodles generally, um, you know, because they have that poodle in their breeding, they can get yeah. hair in their ear. And some people say, well, you should pluck it out so that it aids ventilation. But if you yes, do that, yes. you know, maybe it irritates the skin. So there's this constant argument in veterinary circles is to pluck or not to pluck. Um, <laughs> so You've got to say that very carefully, Dave, please. Uh, very slowly. <laughs> it's a matinee show. Um, so, yeah, kids are at school. So... We do recognise, though, that if they have, for whatever reason, they have irritation in the ear and the dog flaps its ears, there yes. is, a, is a risk that they're going to actually burst a blood vessel in the ear flap, in the pinna, um, and basically the tissue there, you've got cartilage and you've got a little bit of 
subcutaneous tissue and then skin. There's there's nothing else there really. Yes. And so what happens is if if a blood vessel gets broken, it just bleeds and fills up, and so they get this really big fat ear. The problem is that that then becomes very painful. So what do they do? They shake their head, and that okay. just accentuates it. Now there are a number of strategies that people use to treat it. Essentially, it could be surgery. There is medication, but if you've still got an ear problem, whether it's an allergy or an infection, then they're going to go home and flap their head again. So either way, you need to have some treatment because it is actually quite painful for them. Uh, Thank you very much for that, Boyd. Some great advice there and great advice from Dave and Cheryl this afternoon. Cheryl, before I let you go, we started talking about music and and for dogs, the dogs you were listening to. We did, didn't we? What have you got? Well, I found something that the dogs have actually put together themselves. Yeah? I know it's not Christmas time. Is this this straight from your collection? It is. From my iPhone. You ready? (laughs) You're saying nothing. Saying nothing. No? It's amazing how well... You know, in rhythm they are. They are very well in rhythm, aren't they? (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back next week with Pet Chat again. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.